My name is Randall. I'm a friend and volunteer with Rick Bonson Ministries. I'm back from Brazil. It's nice to be back home and where everybody speaks English. Yeah, but there's always ministry to do regardless of where we're at. There's always a duty to fulfill to God. We've been going through the book of Acts these uh, past few days, and I want to continue that with Acts 23, 1 through 11. But first, I want to pray. Father God, this is a day you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, Lord Jesus. I'm praying that if anybody's out there is feeling sick, forsaken, frustrated, abandoned, Lord Jesus, I pray that this message would speak to them, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would remind each and every one of us, including myself, including this ministry, including all who are watching, regardless of where they are at in the globe, Lord, I pray that they would feel your healing, redemptive, heavenly touch through this message, Lord. Lord Jesus, this is your church. It's not my church. It's not Rick's church. This is your church. You are at the head of this church, Lord. And I pray that you would speak to them specially today through this small message, Lord. This is your word. This is your living and active word, Lord Jesus. And I would pray it would continue to cut us, that it would search us, that it would heal us, that it would convict us, that it would comfort us, that it would speak to us, Lord Jesus. This is your living and active word. Therefore, Lord, this little Bible study is your Bible study, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would show up in this Bible study. You take this Bible study. You take the sermon. You take my little speech. You take it wherever you need it to go. Lord, your word will not return to you empty. It will will accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it forth. In your precious, mighty, and holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, we're reading from Acts 23, verses 1 through 11. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And he said this, dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage! As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also testify in Rome. All throughout the book of Acts, you can see a pattern. The Gospel of Jesus Christ boldly proclaimed. Many accept the Gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation, but many reject and forcefully reject at that. This is the pattern the Apostle Paul had seen all throughout his ministry. Whether it was Corinth, Ephesus, Macedonia, he would preach the Gospel, preach the Word boldly. Many would accept, but many would reject. And I imagine with every rejection, Paul would feel that pain. He would feel the heartbreak of God in that rejection. He would feel God crying out, why won't my people listen to me? Why won't people who bear my image listen to me and receive me for salvation? But Paul continued forward, as we are all called to continue forward in our ministries. Whether you're clergy or laity, educated, non-educated, we all have a role to play in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, we all have a duty to fulfill. Again, let me remind you, we don't do this duty to earn salvation. No. We fulfill this duty because of salvation. Because of the Holy Spirit burning within us. The power of God burning within us to, to act, to minister, to spread the Gospel. That is what drove Paul. Paul, he desired so much for everyone he encountered to have that same encounter with the living Christ. The same encounter on Damascus Road that Paul had. He wanted that same encounter for everybody he encountered. Slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And so throughout that perilous journey, Paul saw that saw that, that pattern. Many accepting, many rejecting. And so this duty that Paul had brings them all the way back to Jerusalem. All the way back home. All the way back to his own people. We see in the previous chapter, Paul declares his testimony, declares his encounter with the living Christ, declares his encounter with the one through whom the Old Testament testifies. The Old Testament all points to Christ. The prophets ultimately all prophesied Jesus Christ. They longed to see the time of Christ. Paul saw that time. He encountered that Christ and he was changed forever. And what did the people say in chapter 22? Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. They kicked dust, they tore their clothes, they mourned, they were angry. I remember the words of Christ that prophets are never accepted in their own home country. Here we go. Right here. Paul himself. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. Rejected. Insulted. Slandered. Thrown in prison. Those who have a call of Christ upon their lives should think very carefully. It is a narrow, harsh road. It's not pretty. And so now Paul comes face to face with the entire range of Judaism, the entire range of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. The institution, you could say. The institution, not just one of the institutions. If you were a Jew in Palestine at this time, this was the institution, the cream of the crop. It was the Harvard, it was the Yale, it was the Supreme Court of the land.
He stands looking at the high priest. Who was the high priest? He was a man of, well, societal renown. He was a heavy hitter, you could say. Educated, intelligent, wealthy, and compromised. See, at this time period, Rome had a heavy hand in Jerusalem. They had a heavy hand over Judea. And sure, they allowed the Jews to have a high priest just as long as they had the final say, if they gave their check, if they gave their approval. And so in order to be a high priest at this time period, you had to play the game. One could argue the high priest's focus was not solely on Jesus Christ. One could argue the high priest's focus was not on God. The focus was divided. The focus was partially on the things of God, partially on the operation of the temple of the Lord, but also partially skewed towards Rome. What would Rome think? Would Rome approve? Would Rome like the actions of a priest? Would Rome like my initiatives? Would Rome like my pronouncements? So sometimes when I read Acts, I think, you know, how could somebody so highly educated in the Scriptures, how could somebody so intelligent, how could somebody so perceptive, how could somebody so illustriously educated miss the Gospel? How could they miss the Gospel of Jesus Christ changing lives around them? How could they miss the Messiah testified in the Old Testament? How could they be so blind to the movement of God in front of their very eyes? You cannot see what God is doing and be divided. You cannot... The house divided itself cannot stand. You cannot see God's movement and also be looking at Rome. You cannot see what God is up to and be obsessed with politics. You cannot see what God is doing and also have one foot in the world. That is what results in blindness. It's interesting. Paul uses the phrase, the whitewashed wall. In that time period, as a stone wall was beginning to crack, the mortar, the foundational materials were beginning to rot away, people would just throw a coat of wet, white paint on there just to kind of cover it up. Paul discerned through the Holy Spirit that this man was a divided, decrepit man. He saw past the flowing robes. He saw past the eloquence and saw that he was wretched, that he had a divided heart. He had one foot kind of on the things of God and then one foot kind of on the things of Rome. He saw that. He said, nope. I don't care what your robe says. You're a whitewashed wall. Of course, Paul does say, I did not realize he was the high priest, but personally, I think Paul is speaking ironically. See, God does not judge by the outer appearance. God judges by the heart. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, hmm, you might have the robes, you might have the education, but you're not a priest. God is the one who ordains. God is the one who calls. God is the one who equips. Paul sees the Sanhedrin, the vast range of all Judaism. It was comprised of many illustrious figures. You had scribes, you had teachers of the law, you had Pharisees, Sadducees, and former high priests, and it was chaired by a high priest. This was the institution. You know, institutions, we have institutions in our society today. Maybe it's your undergraduate. Maybe it's a denomination. Maybe it's the Supreme Court, the legislative branch of our federal government. Whatever it is, we are surrounded by institutions. And when you hear the word institution, automatically what comes up in your mind is a collection, a concentration, education, intelligence, talents, good resumes, heavy hitters as I like to say. All of those things 
And yet, these highly educated men, well versed in the Scriptures, the cream of the crop of what their society produced, heard the Gospel, saw an apostle directly ordained by God, and didn't see it. Did not see it. I, I fear sometimes that when we, we read the book of Acts, we see how it's historical and we just kind of breeze through it casually. It's like a travel itinerary. It's like a nice retrospective thing on something that happened long ago, but it doesn't affect us today. It's a nice story. Yes, it shows the church going from Jerusalem to Rome, but we leave it in the past. We leave it abstract. And we have this disconnection. We're reading it with our minds, but it's not penetrating our hearts. The thing that cries out to me in the Scripture is how so oftentimes people, respected people, intelligent people, people of high rank, high authority, high articulance, high eloquence, miss what God is doing right in front of their eyes. It was true then. It's true now. And we should not be surprised when we're trying to serve God, when we're ministering the Gospel, that we have institutional opposition. And I see so many people today heartbroken. They're heartbroken over the institutions letting them down. They're heartbroken of denominations fracturing. They're heartbroken over institutions being blind to what God needs them to do, what God wants them to do, and even religious institutions rejecting the Word of God. And what makes me most afraid is sometimes as Christians, we think that that's like a new thing. That's a novel thing. And then the fear sets in. And when fear sets in, one cannot think clearly. When fear sets in, it is difficult for ourselves to see what God is doing. Human nature don't change. It does not change. But i got good news, neither does God. We should not be surprised if the institutions do not understand us. We should not be surprised then if we're led by God to do something, and we receive institutional opposition. Because one of the messages of Acts is, you can expect institutional opposition. We have the Sadducees here. Yes, the Sadducees. They, the Sadducees were very aristocratic, affluent, intelligent, articulate, priestly aristocracy. Flowing robes, great resumes, high influence in society, absolutely. In fact, they were heavily involved with the daily operations of the temple. The problem is, that's all they were involved in. That was it. They were very narrow-minded, and not only that, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible as Scripture. The prophets, the Psalms, not Scripture to them. Just the first five. They were very worldly-minded, you could say. Very materialistic. The Sadducees did not have any kind of perspective on the spiritual. There was no spiritual for you if you were a Sadducee. Very mechanical, very careerist, very nuts and bolts. There's a term that comes to mind that I describe the Sadducees. It's functional atheist. Functional atheist. What is a functional atheist? A functional atheist is somebody who, yes, acknowledges God's existence somewhere out there, but that God does not impact anything of their personal life. God is not involved. He's not present. God's there. And in today's churches, we have a lot of functional atheists. Yes, God saved me by grace through faith, but that's it. Fire insurance. Check the box off. No personal impact. No leading of the Holy Spirit. No relationship. That was the Sadducees of this time period. 
You cannot see what God is doing if you're obsessed with just mechanical. You cannot see what God is doing, even if you're in a church, if you're obsessed with the church building. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with church buildings. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sacred space. The problem we run into is when we begin to elevate the sacred spaces, we begin to elevate the church buildings above the God they were supposed to facilitate an encounter with. That's the problem. The Sadducees missed that. They were so concerned and obsessed with the temple of the Lord, they forgot who the temple pointed to. The same God who wanted to have a relationship with them. The same God who sent His Son to die for them. And they were so obsessed with their careers, with their resumes, with their societal positions, they completely missed the workings of God in their midst. You look at it. Paul only says two sentences. Two sentences Paul was allowed to speak, and they were already out to bickering and anger and arguing. That's what spiritual blindness will do. That is what careerism and idolatry will do in a Christian life. It will blind you completely to what God is doing. Yes, even church buildings can become idols. You have the other side of the spectrum then. You have the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along so well. It is interesting to note that the Pharisees started as a holiness movement. The Pharisees had knew their history. They had read the Old Testament. They believed all the Old Testament was Scripture. Very good. They had read with horror the idolatry that had gone on in ancient Judah and Samaria. They had seen and watched through the histories Jerusalem commit idolatry, worship other gods. They had seen that and they were horrified. So what did they do? They went the completely opposite direction. They became extraordinarily ritualistic, extraordinarily legalistic. And they vowed never again will become idolatrous like ancient Judah. The problem is they did. It just manifested in a different way. They worshipped their traditions. Have you ever heard of that saying, that's the way we've always done it? That's the way we've always done it. I personally think that's a death knell for a church. It's a death knell for a business. And it was a death knell for the life of the Pharisees. They worshipped their traditions more than God himself. Traditions, traditions, traditions. And these people knew Scripture. These people knew spirituality. They, they, um, they acknowledged the existence of all of it. I think a lot of us in church today would kind of probably side with the Pharisees. If we had a choice between this naturalistic, functionally atheistic Sadducee party and the party of the Pharisees, we'd go with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees missed it. They still missed it. You can be conservative. You can have theological prominence. And you can still completely miss what God is doing in your life. You can completely be blind to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And yes, you can do those things, even if you're winning theological arguments on Twitter. It doesn't matter if you have elevated the intellect. If you have elevated theological acumen above the God it testifies to, you will be just as blind as the Sadducees. You will be like that of an unbeliever. And that was the trap the Pharisees fell into. There's an interesting part in Scripture. There's an interesting clue in Scripture. Paul sets off a bit of a controversy. He testifies about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that's what sets the argument off. But notice what the Pharisees say. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? A spirit or an angel. 
Jesus Christ is not just a spirit. No, no, no. Fully God, fully human. He's not an angel. I think A.W. Tozer said it best. A low view of God is the cause of a thousand evils. Case in point. Yes, the Pharisees were the holiest movement of their day, and yes, they were very conservative, but they still didn't get it either. In the realm of a saved relationship with God through Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the conservative, traditional, theologically very intelligent Pharisees were in the same compartment as the Sadducees. They weren't believing. Instead of hearing what Paul had to say, what do they do? They do what we Americans do so well. They get to do an argument. Paul wasn't even allowed to speak. He wasn't even allowed to give a full testimony. The Apostle Paul was not allowed to preach the Gospel. The Pharisees and the Sadducees both hid. They hid under the guise of some kind of theological argument, just as we can do today. Nobody is saved by winning a theological argument. Yes, we should discuss theology. Yes. Yes, we should know theology. But ultimately, just winning a theological argument cannot save you. It can be an idol, just like the temple. And so, the Apostle Paul was allowed to speak briefly in front of the whole institution this religious institution, this cream of the crop, the best minds, the best professionals, the best resumes, and he was rejected. Completely rejected. A lot of scholars think that Paul intentionally divided the Sanhedrin as some kind of rhetorical tool. When he talked about resurrection, he knew he was going to divide the assembly and maybe make some kind of rhetorical argument or rhetorical avenue to preach the gospel? I don't think so. No, I disagree with that. This council, this institution, was already divided. Bitterly divided. And no, the real division wasn't just about resurrection. We see that so much today, don't we? You know, we'll have an institution that is arguing about a certain aspect of theology or a philosophy, and people say, oh, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for this one topic... We would be so unified. I don't think so. Oftentimes, the divisions in our institutions go way deeper than that. And the institutional division we see is often rooted in a low view of God. That's the problem. A low view of God is indeed a cause of a thousand different evils. I can't tell you specifically what the low view of God is for an institution, but oftentimes it's careerism the worship of buildings, the worship of money, the worship of that feeling of being right all the time. Those are the deeper divisions. Those are the deeper sins. Oftentimes what we have as a, a topic of discussion is just a cover. It's just a facade. The Apostle Paul knew that. I can only imagine how heartbroken Paul must have felt. I mean, it's... I heard in seminary the most difficult sermons you've got to preach are in your home church. <laughs> the most difficult sermons you've got to put out are preaching to people who raised you, who knew you from when you were young. Multiply that strange feeling times a billion. That was Paul. The entire gamut of Judaism rejecting him and fighting and bitterness and anger. And none of it was of God. It was all personal ego. It was all personal idolatry, careerism, money, prominence, professionalism. And so Paul was grabbed by the Roman centurions and led away. Alone in a destitute, 
cold, dark Roman barracks. But I love verse 11. Because the living Christ, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, reaches out directly to Paul in his grief, reaches out directly to Paul in his loneliness, reaches out directly to Paul in his heartbrokenness. The God who transcends all institutions. The God who is bigger than all institutions. The living Christ reaches out to Paul directly and says, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God's greater plan. Jesus Christ transcends all the bickering. He transcends all the politics. And yes, He even transcends your pensions. Jesus Christ, the living Christ, says, Paul, take courage. You're part of a bigger plan than just politics. You're part of my redemptive movement. My grand move of redemption to rescue humanity. I love how Paul references the, the, um, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ was that first resurrection of that hope. He was resurrection number one of that greater kingdom of God. You know, in, in the Garden of Eden, sin enters the world, and the wages of sin is death. And yet this redemption, this hope, is founded on Christ's resurrection. That's the bigger plan. What, what good are politics in a building if they don't testify to God in that greater plan? If you were in Christ, you were a part of that greater plan. The grand arc of God's redemption from Eden all the way to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, you're a part of that. Because I sense that some of you watching this today, you feel heartbroken. You're watching beloved institutions fall apart. Divisions, special meetings, none of it does anything good. Buildings are worshipped. Pensions are worshipped. And the voice of God seems distant and far away. You feel like Paul in those barracks right now. You've been faithful. You've been obedient. You've been born again. You try to serve Christ you try to minister the gospel. You try to be obedient. And as Rick Bonson says, you do what God tells you to do. And the institutions have no clue about you. They don't like you. You don't fit in. You're opposed. You're oppressed. The institutions want to run you out. They want to kick you out. And then when you look at the institutions, what do you see? You see the same thing in Acts 23. Bitterness. Anger. Do not lose that hope because of those things. Those things are small. Ultimately, it is about Jesus Christ and His church. And that transcends all of our buildings. It transcends all of our pensions. It transcends all of our institutions. I'd rather be a spirit-filled GED than a spiritually dead PhD. It's the heart of Christ. It's the heart of flesh that we're granted upon salvation. That's what matters. Take hope. Take courage. You be obedient. Obedience, does not, obedience to God does not always grant us the results that we want. But if we are obedient, we will continue into relationship to God. That's the hope of the resurrection. When the, the stuff that happened in Eden that continues to cascade in our world today, when that's all rectified, when that's all redeemed, that's the big plan. That's what we take courage on. No institution in and of itself can get you that. Only Christ can get you into that. Only Christ. And so if you yourself are in the barracks today, and you're feeling abandoned, and you're feeling upset, do not place your hope in institutions. Do not place your hope in education. Place your hope solely in Christ. That is the foundation. As we land the plane this morning, I'm reminded of something actually a, a district superintendent told me. You know, he said, God is in the institution. He's working in the institution. 
but the institution is not God. And so oftentimes, all of us, high church, low church, laity, clergy, wherever we're at, we get so wrapped up in the politics and the battles of the institution, we lose sight of who the institutions are supposed to point to. Christ Jesus. I I want to encourage you today, if you're in the barracks and feeling forsaken and lonely and heartbroken of the institutions, Christ longs to reach out to you. In the final minute, Lord Jesus, I'm going to pray right now. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here that feels like Paul, who's been shamed or slandered by any church institutions, who feels heartbroken and upset and doesn't know where they're going or doesn't know what they're going to do in ministry and feels like a spiritual orphan, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reach out directly to them right here and right now. And that all the cacophony of institutional politics and all that noise would fade away and they would hear your still, small voice encouraging them to take courage. For they too have places they need to testify as well. From Jerusalem to Rome, from Arkansas to Montana, Paris, France, all around the world, the world is our parishes today. In your precious, mighty, and holy name. Amen. And let them through the wilderness into the promised land. In boundless love and mercy, He gave His only Son, who became the sacrifice for everyone. Oh, God's mercy, so amazes me. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me. To every generation, He gives the joy of His salvation. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me. As I watch the world around me, I can see His mighty hand Delivering His people From the evil in this land The wounded and the broken